Hello. I, Hi. <laughs> I'm so excited to do this. Um, you're one of the interviews I'm like least nervous for because we have these conversations every week. So it yep, should pretty be pretty much. natural. <laughs> Um, so this is Emily Gibson. Um, we have known each other for a really long time. I think we met going into eighth grade when she came on like a mission trip to my hometown where um, we were renovating an old school house. And so we met, but like, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I was like, man, she is so bougie. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to like relate to her because you were like, you just like said something about going to Italy once. And then I like had this whole thing in my head about like, she's such like this world traveler and all these things. And so I had you so built up in my head. Yeah. Um, But then like in high school, when I got to know you better, I was like, I love this girl. And (laughs) we have just like found so many commonalities and have found so much respect for each other as we've like pursued very different careers so yeah that's been fun um and we've never lived in the same state but we've been good friends for so long and um you call me really every week and we catch up so yeah Emily is currently in med school so I'm especially thankful that you took the time to chat with me today because I know your time is limited um but I also know you have some really brilliant thoughts about, about these topics. So thank you so much. Yeah. Do you have any extra context you want to add for our listeners? Um, like you said, I just feel like we, this conversation feels really natural for us because this is something that I've really enjoyed walking with you through. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, our, our friendship has been really weird, but like really good. Um, and a lot of these conversations, when you were starting to talk about this, this podcast felt like the conversations we had been having. And, um, I'm just excited because I think I'm realizing that these conversations are happening more than just in our phone calls. And I think that's why this podcast is really exciting. And I'm excited to kind of just talk more about things we've already been talking about for so long. So, yeah, I think it'll be fun to kind of like compress it all into an hour and yeah. like see what it actually looks like yeah. in that format instead of like a week by week update. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know a lot of your context, but obviously our viewers don't. And so please, or our listeners don't. So please give me like a like paint a picture for me of like what growing up was like for you and like how that worked religiously and spiritually, if those two things are different. Yeah. So I grew up in like a middle-sized town, not like a small town, not a big city, kind of, I would say suburbia-esque. Um, and growing up, my family wasn't super religious in that, like, you know, we went to church on Sundays, but we weren't the family that was like in, in the pew every Sunday, volunteering for all the extra church activities. Like it just really wasn't us. Um, it, yeah, it's interesting. We weren't like, you know how you have those church families that are just like super involved and like everyone knows. And that was not my family. Mm-hmm. Um, we went and we like attended, but that really wasn't us. Um, and so I wouldn't, say that like, I really, religion started becoming a big thing in my life until like a church camp situation. Mm -hmm. I definitely, um, that's when things started to really change for me as far as like, it wasn't just like the Sunday church, um, thing. Um, and I think another thing too, around that time, my family moved churches. So before we had been going to one church that had been fine, but I didn't really feel like we were involved in that church outside of like the Sunday morning service we moved to this other church and I'm also, you know, going into junior high at this time, kind of reaching that age where the youth groups and the church camps and all that are becoming much more of a big part of life. So when we moved to that church, I would say that's when religion kind of started to take a very different role in my life. Um, and I would say my family got more involved in that church as well. Still, we were not that, that family that was like always volunteering for the mission trips and doing that, but we definitely were more involved in this new church than we had been previously. Um, 
And so I think that's kind of where, where the big shift happened um, in our family. I, like I said, I went to church camp, like a summer church camp, a couple summers in a row. And I think that's when I really started thinking about religion more in like the context of my life and not just like a thing that we did every week. Mm. Um, and then youth group, youth group became more than just like the religion aspect for me. I really looking back, feel like youth group through junior high and high school became like my life. It was the church, but it was also the social aspect. All my friends were in youth group. All the events that I did were like through youth group. And it really took on a whole nother form in and of itself through that. So it's a little bit of the background. Yeah. Yeah. What was that church? Like what were like some of the primary values or what was expected of you as like a middle school girl coming into like what what were the big things that you needed to like learn and take on yeah I think that the biggest change that I saw in this church and that I felt at that time was that it wasn't expected that church was just your Sunday thing the emphasis was really like this church and this religion are your life and I definitely like kind of ran with that and, and took that to heart. And like I said, all, all my friends were church friends. All my activities were church activities. Um, it felt very much like it became more like it was expected that your religion didn't stop when you left the door on Sunday or, you know, it didn't start when you walked in the door on Wednesday for youth group. Um, it was very much expected that you were like the living, breathing embodiment of what a Christian should be all the time. And so that was different. Um, definitely. And yeah, I I would say that was kind of the biggest expectation I felt. What did like a good Christian look like? Yeah. So they, you know, first of all, they went to church every Sunday and youth group. Um, they were volunteering in the church nursery on Sundays. I mean, for lack of a better describer or, you know, description of this, it was, a good Christian was at church from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. on Sundays and then on Wednesdays. And a good Christian also took that into their schools with them in that everyone knew where I went to church. Everyone knew outside of church that I was a church girl. That was a big thing. It was like a big identifier. And my, my identity for a long time was I'm the girl that goes to that youth group. So I think that was kind of the the, how it all kind of revolved around. Um, everyone knew that we went to this youth group and all my friends were from that youth group. And that was, that was it. There was no other social aspect or anything like that. It was kind of like a club that you subscribed to. Oh yeah. An exclusive club too. I would say like, it felt very much like looking back, it was not a fun club. It was a club that came with a lot of pressure to, you know, we didn't cuss. We didn't. And when we got into high school, we weren't drinking. We weren't hooking up with people. It was a lot of pressure to stay in that club, but I wanted nothing more than to be in that club. You know, it was this very, like, it really did feel like the, the popular click. And within the youth group, I felt like there were, there were clicks within that. And there was a lot of judgment, you know, the whispers would be, Oh, did you hear so-and-so did this. And that was like the worst thing in the world. And so you just wanted to be on the good side and stay in the the club. And that was kind of how everything like operated around. What were some of the like traits of like the most, like, like, so I was like kind of involved in this youth group too, from time to time. And so, um, I like, I'm trying to think how to ask this question. Like, I, I remember thinking like, oh, like they're just like these like one or two like guys and girls who are like, those are like the people, you know, like everyone wants to be them. Everyone wants to be their friends. They're doing everything right. Like, what are some of those traits that like you felt kind of like pressure to try to be like? Yeah. A big one. And this is going to sound so silly, like looking back at it, but it was to be on the worship team. Right. Mm-hmm. That was like, and I'm not a good singer, but you know, yeah. you bet that I tried and I, that was a really big thing. Like I remember the, and for me, it was definitely like comparing myself to the girls um, because I was like a young woman trying to figure out like who I was, 
how I felt about a lot of things. So I always looked up to like the older girls or the girls that were the popular girls in the youth group. And they were the girls that I felt like, you know, they always looked amazing and they always had like the most sincere prayers. And they were always the ones striving to be like the Ruth and the Esters. And it was all of that stuff. But these were also the girls that I felt like when they went out into their high schools were very different people. And this started to like really form a divide for me because I remember like a couple of these girls being really held on pedestals in the youth group for being these wonderful working in the nurseries on Sunday morning, singing the hymns in front of the church. But then like, I know what you were doing Friday night too. And I think I wanted so badly to be one of those popular girls And I was like, I'm doing everything right. Why am I not? So that, that started to be like kind of a thing for me, definitely for a while, but. And have you like, I know you've started processing this more, but like, have you kind of figured out why you weren't ever like feeling like you were actually like gelled into that? I think there's a couple things. Um, I think, so just again, a little bit more context, junior high, I think I played the part of like the good church girl pretty well. And then coming into high school, especially towards the end of high school, I started feeling like in my heart, I was starting to question more things. Um, that's when I kind of first noticed like church and youth group had been my identity, my social life, my friends for so long, but I was also starting to, to ask questions about things. And I felt like I was starting to kind of there were some cracks in the foundation of like what I thought my faith was then. And I, I wrestled with that question a lot. And I think now I've come to the conclusion that like, it wouldn't have mattered. Right. Mm -hmm. There were certain people that were held on pedestals for whatever reason that was. And it wouldn't have mattered. Like if I had been just like them, because youth groups are not perfect, even though they, they claim to be like, it is still a bunch of sweaty hormonal teenagers in a group with each other. I mean, that's what it is. And so it's basically a high school with the cliques and the popular girls and the not so popular girls, just in a different setting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, I know we've also talked about like some seeds of like anxiety that you've started to identify during that time. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah. I'm glad you, you brought this up. Cause I've been mulling this one over for like ever since I've identified this, I've just been thinking about it a lot. Um, but we've talked about this a lot. I think the actual faith part of it, like the actual religion and believing in God and all of that for me as a young child was so fear-based. I was terrified. I was, I'm a little bit of an anxious person. I'm a little type a high strung and, you know, the Sodom and Gomorrah and the revelation and the world burning aspect of religion scared me so, so much. You know, we would have people come in and describe hell and like graphic details. And I was like a 12 year old, just like trembling. I had a really hard time logically rationalizing a lot of, a lot of that, that big abstract theological concepts. And I think I just accepted everything. Cause I was like, well, I don't want to go to hell. Like I genuinely feel like my whole foundation of faith was, I just don't want to die and go to hell. So I'm just going to accept all this. Like I am so scared and I distinctly remember this. So I went to this church camp every summer and I, you know, I have some great memories of it, but I remember every week of church camp, like the last night they would have this like revival type sermon and, you know, everyone would be in the the chapel and someone would be speaking and just going on and on about like, you have to make the choice. You could die tomorrow. Like, are you going to accept Jesus as your Lord and savior? And I remember I sat through the sermon every year and every year my heart would pound and I would sweat and I would just feel like literally sick to my stomach. Like I was going to throw up. And at the time I was like, this is the Holy spirit. He is physically convicting me and like giving me these signals. And 
this is the sign that like, I need to give up everything to Jesus and I need to just go and do it. But now I realize that was just like a straight up panic attack. Like <laughs> I was having a panic attack every time. I mean, I was so scared. So of course I was going to be like, yeah, whatever. Like, sure. I'm going to, I'm going to drink the wine and do the water dripping and I'm going to grab the rope or whatever the metaphor was that year, you know? Yeah. And it was disguised in my mind as like a conviction or a Holy spirit or something I was supposed to be doing, but like looking back, it was just straight up anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I carried that through, and that was probably when I was younger, junior high. And I really did carry that through still do sometimes that fear of like, what if I am wrong? What if I'm not getting, getting it right? What if I'm not a good enough person or, or all of that. But I think a lot of my foundation was just built on, I'm scared of these things. They're telling me I'm scared of going to hell. I'm scared of all of it. And so it's not a healthy way to build anything. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I feel you. Yeah. Um, so I know like, as you kind of like went through that journey, things kind of shifted for you as you like went to college and Mm -hmm. beyond. And I'd love for you to kind of walk us through what that looked like. Yeah. So I've kind of touched on it, but I think towards the end of my high school experience, there were some cracks starting to form in the foundation of this faith. Um, And a very big one had been the fact that I decided to not go to a Christian university. I decided to go to a public you know, university, um, actually like a very well-known party school, which that was not why I was going there. But, um, and it was interesting because a lot of the people I grew up with in youth group, the ex- expectation was that they would go to a Christian university. Yeah. My parents' expectations were that I would not. And I, I don't really know why. Um, and this is something that eventually, like, I would like to talk to my parents. My dad was like very adamant, like about me not going to a Christian university. And I'm not really sure why, um, I think he had some intuition about the fact that like, I don't know if I would have gotten the experience and or education I would have needed to be doing what I want to be doing, but I I don't really know. Um, So towards the end of high school, I'm really thinking about medicine. I'm really thinking I want to be a physician and I'm knowing that I'm going to go to a public university. And all of a sudden, I would say by the end of high school, I was very well known in youth group. I was very involved. I had a lot of friends. But when I started to make that decision, I felt some things shifting. Um, I felt like people were judgmental about that decision. I was one of the only people not going to a a Christian university in my graduating class. I think there were maybe four or five of us out of like 14. Definitely an unpopular opinion. Um, And my love of medicine really started in high school. I loved the human body. I loved science. I liked helping people. And like, I just, I just loved medicine and I still do. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, But I remember towards the end of high school, we went on this, like, it wasn't even a mission trip. It was a trip where they kind of teach you to want to be interested in missions. I don't know. You, you were there. I don't know how to describe it. (laughs) Yeah. It was kind of like a, like, Hey, this is Pennsylvania, but like, let's pretend that you're like a missionary in the jungle. And then after this, hopefully you all want to be missionaries in the jungle. Right. Which that was that like the intention. <laughs> a whole different can of worms. Uh, like I have so many thoughts about that, but for this, this line of thinking, it was, I remember like having a conversation with one of the leaders of this, like camp thing. And he was basically like, well, if you're not going to a Christian university, you're wasting your life. Um, your whole life should be dedicated to only doing religious things and God things. And, um, if you're not going to a Christian university, essentially like you are wrong. And that was like a big point for me. Cause I was like, I want to go to be in medicine because I want to help people. Like fundamentally, I care about people and I want to help them. And this was such a tangible way for me to like unite my love for science and, and logic and medicine with a Christian value, which is caring for others. And in my mind, it it just, I loved it and it made so much sense. And so then to be told you're not going to a Christian school, like you're wrong. I was just like, what? Like, and then also I was having this kind of like 
internal debate of, okay, if we send all the Christians to Christian schools, who's going to go to the non-Christian schools and like be there, you know, it's like, so that was a big thing. And I remember coming home from that trip and talking to a wife of one of the pastors at, at our youth group. And she was really angry for me and with me. And that was kind of a nice like validation. She was like, you know, you're making this decision. You know, it's the right one. You know, you feel like this is where you're supposed to go. But it was just this like so hard black and white line of like, if basically, if you don't go to a Christian university, you're a heathen, you're gonna like fall out and all of this stuff. And that was really hard for me. That was a big breaking point. Um, And now looking back, I think, and we've had this conversation going to a public university opened my eyes to so many things in the best way possible. I learned, I interacted with people that were so different from me in the best way possible. I learned about different cultures, different lifestyles, different like race, sexuality. I mean, I grew up in basically suburbia. I had very little exposure to any of this. Then I get thrown onto a campus of 40,000 people and I, I learned so much I would not change it for a heartbeat. I would go back and do it again. And I think a lot of the Christian hesitation of sending your child to a non-Christian university is they will learn things. Mm. Um, I even remember like they made us the summer going into college. Our, our church did like a prep for college course and all the seniors got together every Sunday and, you know, talked about the pitfalls of, college and looking back, it's like actually kind of funny. Cause it's like, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't question your beliefs. Like that was like the message. And I did all of those things <laughs> for like, I think I almost think it was like a form of like, I don't know if this is the right word oppression. Like if we can keep Christian high school seniors out of universities where they won't question things, we'll be golden. And now I'm, I think, uh, I don't know, a little bit, the poster child of, I, I went to the big university and I wouldn't say that I lost my, my faith because I went to a non-Christian school. I will say, I think going to a non-Christian university made me question things. And in a lot of ways, strengthen certain beliefs that I had already held, but in a lot of ways, made me question a lot of things and, and really take a look into the lies that I had been told or the hypocrisy that I had witnessed. And it really forced me to think about things on my own for the first time ever. I wouldn't change that for the world. And like I said, I don't think I lost my faith in college. If anything, I refined it mm-hmm. and maybe in a way that a traditional church would not like, and I know they wouldn't like, but that kind of is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, I think you went through that type of refining a little bit earlier than I did. And so it was really nice for me to like, kind of like work through that with you because you like seem to really get it. And I really appreciated that. And I think for me, a big part of it was because you didn't go to a Christian school and I did. And so Mm -hmm. like, I was just a little bit more delayed in all of that, all of those experiences. But I think now like you're able to like process that in a much more advanced way, I think, because you were able to get a jump start on it. Yeah. Um, I definitely think it, I mean, it wasn't, it was definitely hard. Um, and there are still things I question. I mean, we've talked about this. I, definitely my first year of college too. I felt like I had one foot almost in this youth group at home and then one foot in this new life of all this stuff. And, you know, in the back of my head, I have the the teachings that I grew up with, which was women should be mothers and wives and like church should be the most important thing always forever. And, you know, that was it. And then I have this other foot and now I want to be a physician. I want to be a kick-ass professional and like a leader and a strong woman. And I don't like, there was a big dichotomy happening here where I felt very torn. 
Um, we've talked about this, you know, I, I joined a sorority and basically the members of my youth group thought I was like totally a heathen, like, Mm -hmm. and it was things like that. It was like, there was a big, once I got out of the youth group and once I got into a situation that was less Christian based, the hypocrisy and the judgment that I felt made me question a lot. Like you all have preached love and acceptance and caring for your neighbor. And then the second I go and I explore things and I ask questions and I start to disagree, it was like, I was done. I was cut off. I was out. And that broke me in a lot of ways because it was like my whole life had been built on this foundation of people and trust and doctrine. And then the way I was being treated and the hypocrisy that I was seeing just totally shattered that. Um, and that was really hard. And that took a while. I know, you know, this, that took a while to back bounce back from, and I don't even think I bounced back. I think I had to forge a new feeling and emotion on all of this. I mean, I think that was the start of everything for me. Yeah, I can, I can second that for sure. Yeah. Um, and then like, how did you, at that breaking point, how did you kind of like start to put the pieces of your ideas around Christianity together again? Yeah, I think I will like disclaim this. I don't have it all figured out. I still waver sometimes. Um, and a big thing, and we can get into this too, has been the political aspect of it all for me. I am very politically active. I really enjoy politics just from like a, I'm interested in it. I think it's important. Um, and I think this comes into play with the fact that hypocrisy in the church was the driving force for me to, to, have to start rebuilding things. Um, and it was big hypocrisy and it was small hypocrisy, but you know, there were church leaders or just people in the church that I looked up to that were making very poor decisions, like legal poor decisions Mm -hmm. that made me question things. Um, there were people in the church who were at the pulpit or at the, you know, whatever preaching, caring for their neighbors and then supporting Trump. That for me was the breaking point. Um, I, you know, was raised that Reagan era Republican um, without really knowing what that meant. I would think Um, I was a Republican because everyone was a Republican, you know, all my friends were Republican and, you know, the Christian way. It is, it is the Christian way. And the big, I I distinctly remember this. I was thinking about this today. There was a sermon I sat in. It was before the 2012 presidential election. And the pastor got up on the pulpit and said, there are too many issues to think about and consider when voting for a candidate. We should just pick one and it's abortion. Only vote for the pro-life candidates. And I like distinctly remember that. I remember where I was sitting in the church. Like I I could tell you the row I was in. And that's what they said. And so that's what the people of the church did. And now, you know, looking in a, living in a post-Trump presidency era, you want to get up on the pulpit and preach love and caring for your neighbor. How could you support that, that man? That was just... I had such a hard time with that. I know you know that because we've talked about it so much, but when that started to happen and and I, like I said, I saw smaller hypocrisy in the church, things of people who had previously been like very apt at calling others out on their sin and, and really pointing out others flaws were, there was some stuff coming to light about them. That was very bad and shocking. That was hard. But then also it was, I was starting to see the Facebook posts of church members supporting Trump. And was it because of the abortion issue? Was that the one issue they decided to vote on? I don't know. But as 
the presidency continued and he continued to do things and people still supported him. I just really had to take a step back from all of that. I mean, the amount of church members that I muted and or unfriended on Facebook during that time was astronomical because the hypocrisy of having grown up with these core values of Christianity being preached at me of loving your neighbor, accepting all caring about others, you know, washing the feet and being the servant and then seeing people support a president who put children in cages, who actively discriminated against LGBTQ people who actively, you know, forced racist agendas, racist rhetoric, anti-feminist rhetoric. I mean, but he was pro-life to me. It was like, how can you hang all of your eggs in the one pro-life basket and not realize that he is actively anti-life in so many other ways. Um, that was really big. And I, I think a big breaking point for me was the, the migrant crisis at the border. You cannot tell me that him being pro-life means more to you than the fact that there are three and four-year-old and babies, kids in cages, not getting food and water. You cannot tell me that the, that, that outweighs the other thing. And we damn well know that if those kids had been in a different country, churches would be sending missionaries over there to deal with it. Yeah. And I don't know if any of that is articulated well, but that was the messy processing going on in my head at the time of, I cannot see, I cannot consciously watch all of these Christians back a man like him and claim to care about others. Full stop. That was what it was. Um, and that's when I became a bleeding heart liberal, much to my parents, <laughs> parents. Uh, Welcome. Yes. It's a great, great club to be in, but it was just like, you know, I quickly realized, I think that for a lot of Christians, it wasn't about the pro-life thing. Let's, let's stop playing that, that bullshit card. It was about other things. It was about gun rights and it was about taxes and it was about all of that. And they could very conveniently package it into a pro-life movement argument. But you're not pro-life if you're supporting someone who's actively hurting other people, who's actively killing people, oppressing people and all of that. So that was a, that was a big, big moment. And it just got worse as the presidency went on. It just, the hole kept getting deeper and I kept being like, I cannot support anything that supports this type of stuff because I care about people. I fundamentally care about people and their circumstances and their stories. And that was a doctrine I felt like was really instilled in me growing up through the church. So then to see the church really kind of support someone like that, it was like, such like a mental battle of like what I was told and what people were preaching is not lining up with their actions. What else has not been lining up? And that just opened up a whole can of worms. Yeah, absolutely. And then too, like, I know such obviously because you're in med school, like healthcare has been a huge part of things for you. Yeah. And um, even just like redefining what being pro-life looks like and like, mm-hmm. you know, revisiting what abortion looks like. And like, I know that has been a big piece for me is revisiting that. And also just talking yeah. to you about like the medical side of things has mm-hmm. been really important for me. It's so hard. And I like, I will be the first to admit, you know, the word abortion comes up in my stomach does flips a little bit. Cause it was just something it, growing up. It was so into our heads. I very clearly remember having a conversation with a female youth group leader one time who told me that there are three cases in which people try to make the argument for abortion. It's incest, um, sexual assault, and if the child or the mother are in danger. And she was like, I'm going to disprove all of these pro-choice arguments right here. And she goes, if the child or mother are in danger, that's God's will. And whatever will happen will happen. And that's his will. 
if it's sexual assault, that was God's will. And whatever will happen will happen with that. If it was incest, that's what was like the whole circumstance was God's will. And then whatever will happen will happen. Essentially saying that like, no matter the circumstance that brought the pregnancy about, God knew that that was going to happen and his will would be carried out regardless. I just remember standing there being like, really? We're really, we're really gonna, that's really where we're going with this. Because all of those, I mean, all of those arguments, first and foremost, are very anti-woman. The woman is in a a terrible position and gets sexually assaulted. She should have to live with that. And I remember this, this youth group leader saying there's room for redemption in all of these stories. There's room for grace and redemption. So you're telling me that like a woman has to carry her attacker's child, but she like, there's a, there could be a good story, a good storyline coming out of it. Or a baby could be, have, you know, such little quality of life could be in terrible pain and might only live for hours, but there's going to be a good story. out of it. it just, none of that made sense to me. Um, and speaking on the medical issue, you know, this has been something I've really grappled with because I will go into medicine and I will help my patients. Women need to have access to the healthcare that they need for whatever reason that is full stop. And medical providers should be able to counsel them and treat them safely. That that's all it is for me. Um, it's hard and it's, it's a messy conversation to have. And I don't feel like I have all my feelings figured out about it, but what I do know is like, I care about medicine and I care about my future patients. I care about my patients right now. And I want them to be able to make the choices that are the best for them in that moment. I mean, such an important piece is like the context of each person's life. And I think a lot of like, quote unquote, pro-life arguments, like a hundred percent disregard any type of context or nuance that is often like just required when you're dealing with humanity. Right. Well, and I think the other part of it is a lot of churches, and I I don't want to generalize here, but the trend seems to be pro-life, pro-life, pro-life until the baby's born. And then it doesn't matter if they're in a cage at the border. Yeah. It doesn't matter if the mom needs financial assistance, they're still going to vote for policies that actively work against those mothers and families. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be pro-life while the mom's pregnant, I need you to follow through with it and be pro-life after the baby's born. And that was not, I I don't see that very often. You know, I see people that vote for policies that hurt women and children. I see people that, again, you have the baby and then the baby comes, tries to come to America for a better life with you. No, we can't have that. We're going to put the kid in the cage like that. How, in what world does any of that make sense? I, I can't make that make sense in my head because I don't think it makes sense. Yeah. Um, or even just how like in churches, how teen moms are treated. Yeah. Um, it doesn't match with, no, it's really, it's, I mean, we've talked about this too. I just like really appreciate the like pro birth term instead of pro-life mm-hmm. because it seems much more like specific and accurate yeah. to what's actually going on. Right. Cause if you are pro-life, you would also be pro-migrant life, pro-women life, pro LGBTQ life. I mean, you're right. It's pro birth. It doesn't matter anything after the birth. And that was hard. You can let's love the mom for having the baby and then not care about anything after that. That it's not how that works in my book, like at all. That was really hard for me. Um, and on a, on the larger scale of people who vote and back candidates who have those beliefs. Um, I just, couldn't get it. Still don't get it. It makes me really angry. Um, the love thy neighbor as yourself creed doesn't just apply when it's convenient Yeah, and it makes you save money on your taxes and it lets you keep your guns. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. As you continue to process this and see where you like converge and diverge, 
um, what have, what have you processed as far as like how like gender roles work, how dating works? Like, yeah. you know, you didn't go to Christian school and get married right out of it. So <laughs> I did not. what are you going to do? <laughs> Good question. Um, this is another interesting one. I think I've touched on this a little bit, but I chose the not popular Christian route of becoming a woman who is going to have a very fulfilling, active career, going to be the boss in a lot of ways in my life and a leader. And I'm excited about that. Like, I'm so excited to be a leader and to care for people and to honestly have like a career that I really do think is a calling in a lot of ways for me and not in the Christian term of calling, but in the way of like, I get excited when I think about it. I'm excited to help people. Like I genuinely like feel tingly inside when I think about neurons in the brain. Um, yeah. And that was a very unpopular thing. Um, I have a lot of issues with the way that women are treated in the church. I think they are. I mean, even in, in, in the pro-birth pro-life movement, women are not respected or cared for in those conversations. They are an afterthought if they're even an afterthought. And I feel the same a lot about women in positions of power, women in careers in the church. It's frowned upon. I almost feel like at least my growing up experience was that the girls who got married right out of college or right out of high school were doing it right. I, on the other hand, who is going to like, I'm going to graduate school. I'm going to have a career All this. I'm seen as like a little bit of like the scarlet letter. Like I did things wrong. And I don't know for a while that bugged me, but I think I'm to the point where I'm like, I am so excited and like, I am so passionate about the career I'm going into and being a woman in the career I'm going into. I mean, there aren't as many female physicians. We're getting there. We're like more than 50% of med school students right now are females and that's wonderful. Um, but I think it's taken a little while to get here, but I'm kind of like, I don't care anymore that like, that was the expectation on me. And it took a long time to get there. And there are still moments where, you know, we were talking about this the other day, there are moments where something won't happen. Like a relationship won't work out the way I wanted it to. And I'll be like, Hmm, is this God punishing me? Cause that was in growing up. That was like, if a relationship doesn't work out, it's cause God doesn't want you to have it for whatever reason. And you just need to trust that and things will work out coming out on the other side of the experiences and the, and the kind of reshaping that I've had. I know that that's not it, but it's hard not to revert to that sometimes. Why, why did this not happen? God, what are you like? And that's still something I'm, I'm working through of like understanding that if something good doesn't happen in my life, it's not because I'm a bad person. That's been a big thing. Um, cause I feel like the narrative growing up was if good things don't happen for you, it's cause you're doing something wrong or God's trying to protect you from something. And I'm trying to actively break down that that mental block of if something doesn't happen for you, it's not because I didn't deserve it or because I was a bad person and didn't earn it. It's because sometimes life happens and two people are not meant to be together or two people are not going to work out the way you want to for whatever reason it is. Um, and that's hard. That's a hard lesson to learn too, but in a different way, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you've like really left behind a lot of pieces of your growing up, um, spiritually, religiously, um, what are you like most thankful to have left behind? I think, um, the biggest thing I'm thankful to have left behind was the life that I thought I had to have because I was a young female in the Christian church. I felt like there was a big part of me that was trying to convince myself that I wanted to be 
the 22 year old married pregnant housewife that worked at home. And that was my life. And there is nothing wrong with that life. If that's what people want, that is great. I felt like for me, I was being told that that was going to be my life and that that would be the best life and the one that served God the most. And I knew I hated that. I knew that was not me. I knew that I've always been a little intimidating. I've always been a little loud and I've always had some pretty strong opinions. And I knew that that was never going to work for me, that I was going to hate that. I was going to wake up at 35, 13 years into a marriage being like, what am I doing? I, I would have absolutely not done well in that because I have big ideas and I have big thoughts and I have opinions and I want to change things in a lot of ways. And that life that I was being convinced was the best for me was not, I know it wasn't. There's a lot of potential, I think, lost in the Christian church by putting women into this very narrow frame of what a good Christian woman should be. I'm really thankful to have left that behind. I'm very thankful that I didn't end up in a life like that, that would have been, would have made me very not happy. And see, interesting. I had this conversation with my mom the other day. We were just talking. There's a lot of people I know right now having babies and getting married and it's all wonderful for them. Like I'm very happy for them. If that's what they want. Great. I said, mom, are you like upset that like, I am not like anywhere close to marriage. I'm not dating anyone. I'm dating my step one exam in three months. Like I (laughs) am not dating anyone. I'm not in a relationship. I probably won't be for a while. I might do a, a residency program. That's nine years after this. I don't know. Like And that is so much more important to me. And that's what I want. I was like, are you like upset about that? Are you upset that you don't have grandkids? Like, and she was like, no. And I was like that, that was a huge moment for me. Cause I always kind of held on to that thinking that like, maybe my mom was disappointed. You know, she's going to all these other wedding showers and baby showers. And she was like, no, I'm so proud of what you're doing. And that was like really nice to hear because for a long time, I almost felt like ashamed and like, kind of like I was this rebel, but not in a fun way. Like I was the outcast that was like pursuing a life that was very different than what I was told I I should have. So yeah. And, and I think with religion now, just to kind of throw this out there, I, I, I would still consider myself religious. I still feel spiritual and I still believe in God. That being said, I want very little to do with the American church as I grew up, experienced it and knew it. That's, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, I believe in like a caring God and, and one that cares, fundamentally cares about other people. And that is my tenant. Like that is what I have to go back to. It's love and caring about other people when it is uncomfortable and ugly and hard and messy and just downright shitty. It comes down to loving other people and caring about them. That is my religion. I, I like, I feel that so deeply and I support a God that's like, I believe in a God that fundamentally supports that too. Everything else to me, it's just, it's not, it's not it. And I, that's been hard. It's still hard to say. It's still scary to say that, but I just want nothing to do with churches that actively discriminate against people and just really do not live that calling who preach that calling, but do not live it. I am so done with that. Is there anything that you miss? I think there's definitely a sense of belonging that comes with, um, being a part of a church, like in that inner circle of like the popular Christian group. Um, but quite frankly, like I've found my people in other ways, um, being in medical school, like my medical student friends, it's just such a different relationship because we need each other so badly in so many ways. Um, and this is something I was reflecting on. Like, I think of the big part for me was like the relationships and the people I had in the church, but I don't even miss those anymore. 
and I, I don't mean that to sound like, like sad or anything like that, but those relationships, what they were at the time, I'm now realizing were not what I thought they were. There was a lot of judgment and a lot of hypocrisy and I'm not a perfect person at all. I should have disclaimed that at the beginning. I am not a perfect person. I do not have anything figured out, but I feel like now I have the people in my life that I love and who love me back for like the right reasons, Mm -hmm. not because I, I show up to church and I sing in the choir and I play the game well, but because like I'm a real human who's messy and has thoughts and emotions and they love that anyway. Churches preach unconditional love a lot. And I don't think they live it. I think that's, if that could be the tagline to this episode, that is it for me. Like churches love to get up on the pulpit and preach unconditional love for your neighbor, for other people, for the stranger. And then they walk out the doors and I don't see that. I don't see it in politics. I don't see it in how they treat other people in the church and outside of the church. And that was, that was my moment that, that right there. I see that kind of along those lines, I would love to hear some of your like thoughts as you've developed more like educated opinions around mission trips and charity work and how that works. Cause I know we've talked about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. This was another big thing that I really struggled with and learned a lot through in college. So I had a global health minor in college, um, loved it. I love the classes I got to take. And I also did quite a bit of traveling, um, in college and before. So as far as the mission trip thing I did, I went on the mission trips in junior high and high school. I took the pictures with the cute little kids and posted them on the Facebook for the comment. I, I was there. I totally was there because in the world and the context that I was living in, that's what you did. Like, and you were such a blessing to the people you were helping. Fast forward now to my experiences in college. Like we studied how drop-in missions are so, so, so harmful to the communities they go to. Um, And I will say, like, I do think that most times the intentions behind mission trips are, are they are well-intended. I do think that I think 85% of the time, the trips are very well-intended and they mean well, but the economic fact of the matter is the money you all spent to fly to an African country. If you would have just like given that to the orphanage, they would have been so much better. I mean, that's what it comes down to that kind of thing for me. And, um, the orphanage trips in, in particular are really challenging because people like them. It's kids, they're cute, but I think people really conveniently don't understand or choose to forget how damaging it is for a child who has been abandoned to have a group of random strangers walk in for a week and then walk out again. Yeah. I think mission trips are really convenient and that you get to go, you get to have your life-changing week, and then you get to very conveniently forget about the people you just left behind. And uh, yeah, I think, like I said, I studied this a lot in college and, and I also ended up working with a pretty well-known group, um, like nonprofit, um, in college that focuses a lot on sustainable development. And that was a big shift for me, like learning about that. It was incredibly interesting to learn about this whole field of like NGO nonprofit world that focuses on not dropping in and saving children and, and providing water, but actually building up communities at their core so that they can facilitate things themselves and flourish on their own and like taking out that charity part and statistically and economically and developmentally that model works so much better. It's like the whole parable. You give a, give a man a fish, he eats for the day, you know, teach him how to fish. He can do it for the rest of his life. The same principle applies here. Um, And I've been really interested in sustainable development and how, we can support communities like from the bottom up and it becomes a feminist issue. Like it has been proven time and time again, that if you give women resources, 
an opportunity, whole communities are better because of it. Um, I think that's amazing. I think that's awesome. I think that's something that is very undervalued. And there's some great resources out there that talk about that. Shout out Melinda Gates's book. She talks about women and like how empowering women like really can change the world in a lot of ways and, and really change communities. And it's phenomenal. Um, but then we would lose our Facebook albums. We would lose our, you know, Instagram pictures. Yeah. How it's, would everyone know that this is the good that we're doing? How would everyone know that I'm a good person? If, right. Yeah. When in reality, uh, so much of the data just shows that short-term mission trips are very, very harmful to the people that we're helping. And whether we know it or don't, and I think more people are starting to know it, we have got to change how we, I mean, the, the problem is, and I don't know if this is fair or not, but I don't know if churches necessarily care about the damage and maybe they do. I, I don't know. I haven't been in that space for a while, but more and more NGOs and nonprofits and just research on global health and like global issues is showing that the drop in mission trip is not sustainable and it's not helpful and can actually do more harm than good. And I would really hope that churches listen to that. I'm skeptical. Um, I mean, even the fact that I, I mean, I wasn't, I was a part of those mission trips, not that long ago, probably what, 15 years ago, 12 years ago. I had never heard of sustainable development. I didn't even know what that was until I got to college. Like, yeah. And, and I definitely got a little defensive at first. I was like, wait, I went on these mission trips and we did so much good. We were, we were different. That's a nice convenient lie. We try to feed ourselves. And again, I think people go with the best intentions. And I had, I was going with the best intentions. Um, best intentions though, doesn't always translate to like the best help or the most um, beneficial situation for the people we're trying to help. And I think it also goes back a little bit to our our focus on elevating ourselves and the hypocrisy of maybe not really caring about other people as much as we say we are. Yeah. Intentions only go so far when they don't have like data or context to like back that up or education to back that up. So it's like, you cannot, you can't only judge someone off of like their intentions, but I think it's often that's often asked for in the church. Yeah. I also think too, it's, you know, it is wonderful to help other countries. I very much believe in like a global society. I believe that more wealthy nations need to lift up other nations. I 100% believe that I am seeing that right now with the COVID vaccine. Um, that's a big issue going on right now with how, um, lower income countries are not being given the opportunity or access Um, I very much believe in a global world and globalization in general. I think as a world, we do better when everyone's doing better. That being said, there's also a lot of opportunity at home to be making changes and helping other people. And a lot of times it was more exotic and more fun and more adventurous to go elsewhere. So I think that that's another way to examine what are our intentions here? Are they really to help people? Because if you really want to help people, there are people down the street. Um, and I'm, and I, again, I think every, I think helping everyone is great. I really, I really do. It's just, there's a lot of opportunity at home to a lot of need. And if we really look at our intentions and what they are, and we would rather go somewhere else, maybe that illuminates really the, the actual like root of what we're doing. And like I said, just we spend so much money going to these places and all of this, when in reality, what they could use is just our money. Like the cost that it is to like send 10 people to like a village in Zimbabwe, like Zambia or Zimbabwe or Uganda would be like a salary for a nurse for like three years. Right. And I will say, I have seen Christian organizations that are pivoting to that model of supporting communities. And I think that's wonderful. I think that that is just like a change that needs to be made. And I'm like very 
happy to be seeing that made. I wish it would happen more. I will say it's been weird the last year. There have been a lot less pictures of mission trips. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be interesting to see how things change in a post-COVID world. I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I, I think the sustainable development thing is big. And that's something I, I, I thought about a lot in college. And I think, like I said, I got defensive at first. I was like, but I wanted to help. I was doing good. But then I had to take a step back and be like, who was I actually helping? And like, what, how sustainable was that? And like, what, who really benefited from that? And it was me. I, my life was changed. I saw all this stuff, but I dropped in for a week and I helped some people. And then I left and I got to go back to my very convenient, cushy life. And that's not sustainable. It's not actually helping people. And to take it one step further, if someone is starving or needs medication and we drop in with just the gospel, that's not helpful either. Um, physical needs, physical needs have to be met first and foremost, and also not in a way that's manipulative. I can't drop in and give you a hearing aid or, you know, fix your, your mouth and your smile under the condition that you come to the sermons and accept Jesus. Right. Right. That's not, yeah, that's a transaction. There's something about that's a transaction. And that feels a little manipulative to me, right. That feels a little, um, transactional. It feels a little exploitative too. Like you have people who are vulnerable, who desperately need whatever it is you're offering. And you know, that it just, that gives me weird feelings in my stomach, in the pit of my stomach, that just doesn't feel great. You have to meet people's physical needs first. And the best way to do that is investing in their community. Yeah. I hope people have been taking notes today because (laughs) you have so many good things to share. And like, I know that you are very well read, very well researched, very educated. Um, and so I often, you're like one of the primary people in my life that I'm like, I really want to hear your thoughts on this. And you've helped me kind of develop that, but I'd love to hear from you as we're kind of wrapping up what you have to say to people who are worried about young people leaving the church. Well, I think the biggest thing And I think I've touched on this quite a bit. Again, I don't have this all figured out. This has been a whole learning process for me. There's still a lot of things I don't feel great about that I'm trying to figure out, but I would say worry less about youth leaving the church and worry more about living out the values that you're preaching. I think there is this huge anxiety and stress in the church about the kids are going to go to a public school and they're all going to all going to become heathens and like, I don't think that's what we need to be worrying about. I think the bigger issue to me and the bigger issue for a lot of people my age and in our generation is not that like we go to these public universities. It's that people in the church are not living what they said that they were. And that's, what's causing issues. It was for me. I think my, my, my basic statement would be stop freaking out about kids leaving and start actually living what you're preaching and shutting out the hypocrisy. And then I, I quite frankly think more kids would be willing to stay in the church. I mean, if I had seen the actions of the church be loving, caring, and kind, I don't think my journey would have gone the way it had. I think so. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. Um, As you know, I respect and love you a lot. So I'm really glad that you were so willing to and excited about sharing your thoughts with the listeners because you have really good things to say. And I I think it's going to help a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I, like I said, I've been so thankful for you because we have really, I feel like processed a lot of this together in a lot of ways. Um, in a lot of ways I did experience it earlier, but you 
experiencing it helped validate a lot of what I was going through. It's scary. This, this is all so terrifying. Um, yeah. And I have, I mean, I'm fine, but like, I have ear like tears behind my eyes, you know, it's, these are big emotions and they're big things to process and they're big things to wrestle with and having someone or anyone that you can come to and say things like very, like, I just need to say this and I'm struggling with this and being able to have that like non-judgmental sounding board in your life is it's incredible and invaluable. And that that's what you have been for me. I could come to you and, and say these things that in a past life of mine would have been very controversial to say, and you've been like, yeah, uh, I kind of agree. So like, let's talk about this. And that that's been absolutely huge for me. So. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much. I hope that you have a lovely rest of your day. I'm sure Thanks. you'll be studying because you're always studying, but <laughs> yeah, I actually might take the night off. We'll oh, see. good. You deserve yeah. it. You deserve it. Take care, friend. I will talk to you later. Sounds good. Bye.